0: Hello, and welcome to Radical Exchange Replayed. This week, we bring you Revenge Capitalism, Max Haven, interviewed by Mark Garrett. Max Haven is Canada Research Chair in Culture, Media, and Social Justice at Lakehead University in Northwest Ontario, and Director of the Reimagining Value Action Lab. He writes articles for both academic and general audiences, and is the author of numerous books, His latest, Revenge Capitalism, the Ghosts of Empire, the Demons of Capital, and the Settling of Unpayable Debts, appeared in May 2020. Mark Garrett is co-director and co-founder with artist Ruth Catlow of the arts collective Furtherfield, beginning on the internet in 1996. Furtherfield has two physical venues, a gallery and a commons lab, both situated in Finsbury Park, London. My name is Matt Pruitt. Enjoy.
1: Hello, Max. Good to meet you. Nice to see you. Uh, So we're going to discuss your latest book, Revenge Capitalism, which actually the longer title, uh, The Ghosts of Empire, The Demons of Capital and the Settling of Unpayable Debts*. So you're kind of in a a chair of research in culture, media and social justice at Lakeland University in Canada. Uh, Your books include Art After Money, Money After Art, Crisis of Imagination, Crisis of Power. Cultures of Financialization and the Radical Imagination. After three books I've read uh, is Art After Money, Money After Art, and Radical Imagination, which they're both equally good, but they're both different to this book. <laughs> Revenge Capitalism, The Ghost of Empire, The Demons of Capital, and The Settling of Unpayable Debts is Max Haven's most recent publication to date. Capitalism is in a profound state of crisis beyond the mere dispassionate cruelty of ordinary structural violence. It appears today as a global system bent on reckless economic revenge. Its expression is found in mass incarceration, climate chaos, unpayable debts, pharmaceutical violence, and the relentless degradation of common life. Max Haven argues that this economic vengeance helps us explain the culture and politics of revenge we see in society more broadly. Moving from the history of colonialism and its continuing effects today, you argue the opioid crisis in the US, the growth of surplus populations worldwide, and unpacks the central paradigm of unpayable debts, both as reparations owed and as a methodology of oppression. I myself, co-director of Furfield, We'll interview you about this book, discussing how its themes, ideas, and social context relate to our own everyday and cultural experiences and what this means. So, Max, my first question is that revenge capitalism feels very different to your other publications. Already, there's something about that word revenge, which we will discuss further in the next 45 minutes or so. However, my main question to start with at this point is why you chose to write such a book now? And do you feel that it's different to your other works on the whole? And if so, what is that or it?
0: Mm. Yeah, thanks so much for taking the time and for these great questions. I mean, I think when I sat down to write this book, it began, to tell you the truth, at the moment when a neo Nazi drove his car into protesters in Charlottesville, Virginia, killing the anti fascist activist Heather Heyer, and in some ways announcing. For the whole world to see that a kind of far right revenge politics had fully entered the world stage. And I want to qualify that by saying that for many other people around the world outside of North America, that revenge politics had been abundantly clear for a long time. I mean, it had already been clear in the preceding year and a half within North America with the rise of Donald Trump and his sort of vindictive racist campaigning which now in the time that we're doing this interview in in June 2020, we were seeing in full blossom in terms of his response to the Black Lives Matter demonstrations. We saw that view of revenge politics in the Brexit referendum, for instance, in the UK. We saw it with the rise of Orban in Hungary, Modi in India, Bolsonaro in Brazil, and elsewhere around the world. So I don't want to particularize the US experience, but I think that moment led me to really want to do a deeper investigation of how politics, how democratic politics generally turns so vindictive and vengeful. And I wanted to respond to the kind of precious and pearl-clutching surprise of the liberal intelligentsia of on both sides of the Atlantic that seem to say the rise of revenge politics is surprising. Whereas the argument I make in the book is ultimately revenge politics is the natural and logical outcome. Of a kind of economic revenge that's been wreaked by capitalism, first and foremost in our moment of financialization, which is kind of takes place in the same historical and scene as corporate-led globalization and neoliberalism since the 1970s. But in fact, if we look at the history of capitalism more broadly, we'll see that it has been vengeful and it has depended on the articulations of political revenge since its very origins in 1492, beginning with the vindictive voyage. Of Columbus across the ocean and the incredible violence that has been unleashed by European imperialism ever since. So, in that sense, the book is very historical, it's very contemporary, it's about our moment, but it's also for me, it was a forensic investigation of what led to a moment. In that sense, it is a bit different than my other books, but still within a similar thematic, which is that everything I've written and my whole ambition over my academic career has been to study the power of the imagination. And on one sense, I've studied that in terms of the power of social movements, radical artists, in order to see how they activate the radical imagination, how they create a space where some other thing might emerge into the world to make other worlds possible and thinkable. But on the other hand, I've been interested over the last few years in the dependence of capitalism as a system on imagination, on harnessing and activating our imaginations so that you can have something like the financial sector, which basically runs on completely imaginary money. And yet that imaginary money has incredible power over life, work, food, housing all over the world. And I've been trying to figure out how it is that the imagination has so much power. And if it has so much power in this moment to really create a world out of these imaginary assets, to what other ends could the imagination be put? And that interest still carries over into revenge capitalism. Part of the investigation of the book is trying to figure out how it is that you can have a system that's so vengeful and violent without anyone necessarily intending it to be vengeful or violent and how it conscripts, in some ways, all of us into reproducing that
1: system of vengeance and violence. Okay, so for the next question, I can pull something out of what you just said there. So beyond the mere dispassionate cruelty of ordinary structural violence, which is how we traditionally see it as, there's a kind of emotionally systemic revenge, almost, where we have networked versions, neoliberal versions... And so we have a kind of various sets of values are based on those systemic approaches around revenge and violence and stuff like that. Would you say that's part of the methodology?
0: Yeah, the methodology is a bit counterintuitive in the book, but I think you're capturing it there. There's at least two layers of the revenge of capitalism. On the one hand, there's what we would kind of expect, which is that, well, actually, let's say three layers. So on one level, We know from the history of capitalism that it's always relied on the reckless, sadistic vengeance of the ruling classes and racial elites to maintain order. So this looks like the suppression of strikes of working people. It looks at the really horrific violence enacted in colonies. And that includes not only direct military violence, but also the violence of indifference, like when the British Empire allowed millions of Bengali people to starve to death in 1943 under Winston Churchill. Churchill was a racist, and he made a choice to do that, but it wasn't necessarily something that, you know, like his modus operandi to do it. It was part of the vengefulness that had been a part of the British Empire since its onset, of which he was an agent and an operative. So on the one hand, we have these forms of vengeance that are sort of direct. On the second hand, we have the kind of indirect vengeance that nobody necessarily intends. And so this might include like the vengeance of climate change. Nobody necessarily intends to put two to four billion people in the world at risk of starvation, displacement, or death because we've decided to secure and defend the profits of a handful of fossil fuel corporations. Nobody actually like came together and like cackled in a back room or were like, yes, we're gonna do this. The vengeance on those people around the world, those two to four billion people emerges from the internal and inherent logic of the system. So what I'm really striving to find in the book is the way that the system takes revenge, though it's not necessarily the intention of any individual. And certainly it's not the intention of a system because the system itself can't take revenge. And then third, I'm trying to understand how being in a context of a world that is created and shaped by the revenge of capitalism, a revenge politics then is bred. As people respond to it, Often in very bad ways. So, you find the rise of new ethno nationalisms, new religious fundamentalisms, new forms of reactionary politics that have this character of being vengeful. And they are responses to the vengefulness of capitalism, but they're in fact terrible responses that really just reproduce the system rather than in any way challenge
1: it. In your introduction, you say, I'm interested in what do I mean to face our fear of revenge head on? and ask, what would it mean today in the face of the rise of reactionary revenge fantasies to cultivate an avenging imaginary as a revolutionary force? So could you offer us a short, and perhaps, general summary of what this looks like in respect of how it has been presented in your book?
0: Sure. I think it makes most sense when compared to what I'm arguing against, which I term in the book, reconcilophilia. By that, I mean the strange way we've come to obsess, especially over the last 30 or 40 years, with the idea of forgiveness and reconciliation. Now, the example that's closest to my heart is here in my home country of Canada. There's been an ongoing effort through a Truth and Reconciliation Commission and the initiatives of the current government to reconcile with Indigenous people, which is to say atone for the crimes of genocide have been committed against Indigenous people, specifically in the residential school system, which essentially was a policy over part of the 19th and 20th century to seize Indigenous children from their family and re-educate them in state and church-run schools that were extremely abusive culturally, but also to the individual children as well in terms of physical and sexual abuse. So there's been a kind of atonement for that, and the government here has really pushed the idea that this is going to solve the problem of Indigenous people and that we're on the road to reconciliation. But this approach then tries to sweep under the rug the continuance of the kind of vengeful colonialism that Indigenous people have faced in Canada since its founding as a British and French colony many centuries ago, in the sense that the Canadian nation state still depends on resource extractive industries that require the seizure of Indigenous land. Indigenous people still suffer incredibly horrific indicators in terms of mortality from preventable causes, in terms of police abuse, in terms of health and welfare. So ultimately, on the surface, there's an insistence on reconciliation. Underneath that, there's the continuation of revenge. And I see this pattern as continuing all over the place, that we have a kind of obsession with peace, with reconciliation, a lot of which gets projected onto certain beatified figures like Martin Luther King, Gandhi, and Nelson Mandela, that we sort of fetishize or romanticize, ignoring completely their thought and their work and their life and their context. In order to satisfy ourselves that there is some politics out there that is about positive affect, positive emotions. And I see this reconcilia as often self-serving and narcissistic. And in contrast, I want to turn to the way that social movements of the working class, of colonized people, of racialized people, have always had an avenging aspect to them. And not to sweep that under the rug, which is always our temptation. To say, in fact, that there has been a sense that these movements have not been vindictive in the sense that they want to take revenge on particular people, although sometimes that happens. But to say that often these movements, if we're honest about them and we want to embrace and think in complexity about their legacy, have said to their participants, there is a debt to be paid to us. We are owed a debt that has not been paid and that debt is unpayable. And that we are here not only to avenge the crimes and cruelties that have been enacted on us to avenge the crimes and cruelties that have been enacted on our ancestors, literal and metaphoric ancestors. And if we take that as a part of what animates social movements, we can recognize and start to make better distinctions between the kinds of what I call avenging imaginary. And for me, the more successful and more promising avenging imaginaries are ones that say, we don't just want to return the harm that was done to us in the same coin in which it was dealt. We don't just want to revisit on our oppressors the form of oppression they are enacting upon us. Rather, and this is a key theme right now in the uprisings in the United States and elsewhere against the devaluation of Black lives, the avenging imaginary, what I would call the avenging imaginary of the protesters, is in many cases saying, we want to abolish the system that caused the harm and the revenge in the first place so nobody ever has to suffer it. And I think that's a key pathway towards the radical imagination in that avenging imaginary, which is distinct from what I call a revenge fantasy.
1: Well, that's two of my questions answered there. <laughs> <laughs> but I might go back to them. So in the first chapter, the title is Toward a Materialistic Theory of Revenge, and you represent an expansive archive of critical theory with examples from popular culture and on the rise of, say, revenge projects of Donald Trump to develop a materialistic theory of revenge. So by examining this entwined history of colonialism, patriarchy, and capitalism, we refrain on one hand, something that describes logical systems of domination, as well as, and we all heard, remember Trump saying, we must dominate, as well as pervasive political sentiment to which those systems give rise. And so I'm saying, could you highlight some of those examples in relation to the revenge politics of Donald Trump?
0: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think he offers such an incredible example of the articulation of a revenge politics, almost too good an example. And I'm also, (laughs) I also just want to preface any discussion of him by saying that if Donald Trump did not exist, then revenge capitalism would have had to invent him. Because ultimately, the service that he does is to particularize Mm -hmm. and exceptionalize revenge politics in a way that allows many protagonists and proponents of revenge capitalism who are otherwise better behaved and better spoken to hide their own activities. So, you know, you have most of Wall Street crying foul about Donald Trump's revenge politics or what I frame as revenge politics. And yet, of course, they are the authors of the revenge economy that gave rise to him. There's the caveat in place that if we speak about him, let's see him as a crystallized articulation of some much deeper tendencies rather than as the exception. I think everything we need to know about him happened just last week when, on a telephone call with governors in the United States, Republican and friendly governors to him responding to the uprisings in US cities, he instructed them that, to quote, there needs to be retribution for the uprisings. And I think to unpack this, there's one surface meaning here, which is simply that he is an authoritarian. He believes that law and order needs to rule and that anyone who breaks his definition of law and order, and it's very selective, of course, needs to be punished. And that punishment needs to be public and it needs to be retributive. At least in this sense, he's honest about what so many other politicians hide. And the example I'll give, because it's contextual to the uprisings that are going on now, is the American prison system. There is no way any intelligent person could imagine that the American prison system is about anything other than retribution, not for people who've done harm to society, but against Black people for being Black. That is the modus operandi of the American prison system. It is a form of mass incarceration, mostly of Black people, and most of the people who are in there are for petty crimes or crimes that were committed out of the experience of poverty. It is the continuation of a system not only of slavery, as has been pointed out by many commentators, it's also a continuation of the forms of anti-Black revenge that were pioneered during slavery and became the norm, especially in the U.S. South, after the abolition of slavery, where gangs of white people organized themselves into organizations, including the Ku Klux Klan to basically take freelance reckless revenge on black people for simply existing. Uh, So ultimately, what we're seeing is an uprising against the forms of anti-black revenge that have been the mainstream and the systemic basis of the American society and American economy since, well, before abolition, but certainly since abolition, when Black people and their allies dare rise up against this form of systemic and structural revenge. Donald Trump then calls up the spirits and the demons of political revenge again. He's about to make a speech in the next week that's authored by his white supremacist assistant Stephen Miller, where I think we're going to see precisely again this calling out to the spirits of white vengeance and white vengefulness. And I think that gives us a a very good example of exactly what's happening here. He makes an incredible amount of political capital by calling out these spirits of revenge. But why? So one reason is that the United States has been steeped for centuries in anti-Black revenge. And that anti-Black revenge sometimes takes the form of vigilante violence. Sometimes it takes the form of police and prison violence that is systemic and structural and institutional. And sometimes it simply takes the form of an authorless and seemingly nonsensical economic revenge against Black people, where the structures of the economy, from the subprime loan scandal to its predecessors in redlining in American cities, and various other forms of economic exclusion and exploitation, have taken this kind of slow intergenerational revenge on Black people.
1: It's almost like because the systems have already set up, You can get away with it, so why not just do it? It's almost like you don't actually, you know, if you look on Twitter and people are just reacting without thinking, and they're kind of retweeting revenge anger without thinking that they're perpetuating the spirit of revenge and racism, which I think fits quite closely to where you're coming from around that you've got the spirit that kind of takes people over, which is a bit like classical Greek where say like spirits used to take people over like rage and love and anger and then it's gone somewhere else and it's really strange where Mm -hmm. yeah you've got this kind of and i think we're beginning to realize especially that your book profoundness of it or profundity or whatever it what it kind of reminds us even though we have all this technology and all this kind of belief that we're kind of accelerated into a kind of future state of existence that's beyond primitiveness we are really still extremely tribal and we're still dominated by kinds of male patriarchal figures whether it's kings and queens or presidents that right from the beginning of record that we've always been influenced by and it just doesn't stop yeah, I mean, I would agree with that, but I would you know, I would it, give two qualifications to it. I would yeah. say this before you answer. I'll say this in a Murray Bochin sense.
0: Uh-huh.
1: So carry on, sorry.
0: Uh, no, no, no. I, I I, think that's a good a good way of framing it. And I think the thing that I take from Bookchin and other writers is, is that we have a responsibility to uh, struggle against authority and authoritarianism that transcends all different social formations, and that there is a solidarity throughout human history with those who do struggle against that authoritarian tendency. The two qualifications I would give to what you just said, which I think is really, really interesting, is that First, I don't necessarily think the thing that you're describing is tribalism. And I think if you look at a number of kind of radical anthropologists, one of the things they point out is that in actual tribal societies, there are interesting mechanisms by which societies deal with revenge. And one of the examples we might get to talk about later is the example of wampum beads in tribal societies, What we would classify a bit unfairly as tribal societies in Turtle Island, or what is now known as North America. Wampum beads before colonization played a very important role in those societies in healing revenge and making sure that revenge didn't run away with individuals and didn't run away with society. The second thing I would say is I think that there's a huge element of truth to the idea that revenge and the, the kind of manipulation of revenge by powerful figures has always been with us as human beings. But I think that that's, what revenge means changes in every society. And it changes in part because those, precisely those powerful figures define what revenge means for us. And one of the arguments in the book is that in all of these societies, but especially in capitalism, The powerful seek to define the exercise of their power, even when it's purely vengeful as justice, as necessity, as economic normalcy. And, uh, you know, the example of the American prison system is another good one that is defined as the exercise of impartial justice. It's defined as the locking up of bad guys, blah, 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 blah. In fact, it's revenge. And, you know, colonialism is another great example. When the colonists arrived in a place, what they saw and how they framed the indigenous people they met was as pathologically vengeful, semi-evolved, partial humans. And while the colonial system took constant and unrelenting revenge on colonized people, it was presented as justice, as normalcy, as law. So there's a way that in every historical epoch and every society, the, the system of power that takes revenge and excites revenge Hides its own revenge and projects the slur of revenge and vengefulness onto its others, upon whom it's taking revenge.
1: Okay, so in the first chapter, again, you say to face head-on the materialist theory of revenge, we will need to let go about allergy of thinking seriously about revenge. Are you saying that knowledge and ideas about revenge need to be examined more deeply and critically? And which, of, which is obvious, you are. In a say, if so, in what contexts, you know, maybe beyond academia, where would you think that those need to exist? I
0: feel that on a sociological and anthropological level, as I was just discussing in my response to the idea of tribalism, I think every society and every subculture in some ways of societies finds its own ways of transmuting vengeful feeling into generative political change. If they're going to be successful. So, first and foremost, I would say that the, one of the big problems with many struggles for justice in the world is that, especially in this day and age, partly because of the legacies of Christian scripture, we have this allergy to t- even talking about revenge. It's like if you feel vengeful, then there's something wrong with you. Whereas, of course, I would say if you feel vengeful in this moment, then that is a natural response to a system that is taking revenge on all of us in differential ways with differential consequences. So first and foremost, let's be honest about the feelings that we're feeling, and let's develop a better language and better theories for understanding those feelings. And second of all, my sense is that we need to then think very carefully and and work with our historical archives and our traditions to think about how we can transmute the feeling of vengeance, which has a lot to do with trying to return the harm that was done to us on others. To transmute that feeling of vengeance into what I call a movement for avenging. And that doesn't mean giving up on the vengefulness. It simply means recognizing that if that vengefulness is going to be put to a use that actually ends these cycles of violence and retribution, we are going to need to transmute it into something capable of taking vengeance not on individuals, but on systems. And one of the great successes of right wing or reactionary revenge sentiment and revenge politics is that it does the opposite it says don't focus on the system the system doesn't matter look at individuals or look at groups of individuals and take revenge on them instead and so it offers a kind of cold comfort as revenge often does
1: and obviously they've got lots of right-wing newspapers that are happy just pick on individuals as part of their weaponry
0: absolutely Uh, and it's very lucrative for newspapers and media. yes
1: i mean yes
0: and for hollywood too
1: yeah yeah, it just all fits together, and you've got influences. And uh, okay, I'm going I want to discuss a little bit more around some of the Black demonstrations that have been happening because this week, as part of Black Lives Matter protests in the UK, in response to George Floyd being murdered by Derek Chauvin and his police peers, the statue of Edward Colston, the English merchant and Tory member of Parliament who was involved in the slave trade around 16. 72, was toppled in Bristol, one of my old places I used to live in. It's a very good place as well. On the 7th of June, it was rolled down the street and then thrown into the harbour by Black Lives Matter protesters. And the successful toppling of Colston has encouraged attention to other statues of slave traders, uh, such as Cecil Rhodes in Oxford University. And that's kind of teetering. It's not quite been knocked off its pedestal just yet Mm -hmm. it's colonial pedestal and so at the moment we're having a kind of debate online everyone's discussing it's in the news at the moment it's a very interesting stage in the black lives matter critique of our uh, colonial histories And it's also a chance for like Bristol's got a very strong black and working class culture and not just that, it's quite educated so it knows its history, it knows why it's doing it, it's not just doing it for the sake of it. So you're going to get these different elements of people that are not just reacting because they think they should react, they're reacting because they're using the moments to express their dissatisfaction of the hierarchies that are dominant, their own narratives and cultures, etc. And so what kind of revenge do you see this has being mm. and how does it connect up with revenge capitalism because this has happened after you've written the book mm-hmm. so it's quite interesting to see how you can relate it in that context
0: yeah yeah thanks well i think maybe there's three parts to this question so the first part i would say is that i mean bristol was built on the slave trade that's the reason why the city basically exists as a city as a port So it's important to recognize that the entire architecture of that city, of which that statue is a piece, really comes from a history of revenge, because I would frame the history of the transatlantic slave trade and the slavery economy of the Caribbean and other British holdings in the Americas as one that was based fundamentally on Revenge. I mean, if you read the accounts of slaveholders themselves and slave traders themselves, they're quite honest about the fact that they take preemptive revenge on enslaved people all the time the most horrific acts that humans are capable of were normalized and excused away in one hand as being fine because these people in the view of the slaveholders were not human, but also, interestingly, because the history of slavery and racism in the UK and elsewhere has always been based on the idea and the fear of the revenge of the enslaved. And so the slaveholders would take this kind of needless, warrantless, constant revenge on enslaved people because they said if they didn't take that revenge preemptively, then the slaves would take revenge on them. There's an element of truth to that. The slaves certainly had every right to take every revenge on their slaveholders, as happened, for instance, in the Haitian Revolution and revolutions that occurred, for instance, against the British slave systems in Jamaica and elsewhere. So on the one hand, I would just want to frame the origins of capitalism, the origins of Bristol in this kind of revenge system. The second point I would make is that the continuation of insisting on maintaining these statues in the face of that horrific history. And then the gall of saying that it's about preserving history, while at the same time it hides the history of revenge, is itself a form of revenge. It's a form of revenge on all the Black and racialized and working class people of Bristol, that every day they have to look at a statue whose history of revenge is hidden, right? And so then, when people actually tear it down, of course the response... From the inheritors of empire and let's be clear about who they are the sort of right-wing press the inheritors of empire and the inheritors of revenge capitalism their response has been to say oh this crowd is recklessly bestially vengeful that all they care about are these petty acts of vengeance against the statue aren't they stupid aren't they subhuman it participates and perpetuates exactly the same underlying narrative as the slaveholders had the whole time which is that the crowd the racialized other, the colonized other, the enslaved other is a subhuman, incapable of any more complex political thought than simply reaction and revenge. And it is therefore justified, it was justified during slavery to use preemptive revenge against them. And it is justified now to use police violence against them. So the cycle of revenge is here. Whereas, just to close, I think that the Daring Down of Statues is resonant with this kind of avenging imaginary. I think it's part of a system that says this is an unacceptable way of punctuating public space with these horrific monuments to death and destruction. And I think ultimately there's a sense here that in a book I come to this formulation that an avenging imaginary flows from the conviction that what you love has value in a world where it is rendered worthless. And the tearing down of this statue is an act of love for black life and for the idea that as communities that involve multiple different sorts of people, we could live and transcend the histories of violence that have been used to tear us apart.
1: Okay. So in chapter three, which is titled Money as a Medium of Vengeance, Colonial Accumulation and Proletarian Practices, in it you seek to demonstrate that in spite of the claims of neoliberal theorists, we frame capitalist money as a singular social technology of peace, it can fruitfully be understood as a medium of systemic and structural violence and revanchism What's that?
0: Revanchism. Yeah.
1: Yes, what is that? I've never used that word before.
0: It's an interesting you... word. It basically means a politics based on revenge, but it originally comes from French and it referred to the hegemonic desires of the French state to reclaim Alsace from the Germans. Wow. Um, Yeah, and then it's also been used fruitfully to describe the feelings of the U.S. southern quote-unquote rebel states for the loss of the Civil War. So it describes a kind of political form of revenge.
1: I like it. So I have my own immediate examples such as neocolonialism and cultural imperialism, but of course it would be great to hear your own examples from this chapter where you discuss Mm. early history... As correct me if I'm wrong, a vindictive form of monetary colonization, which you, you have unpacked some of that. So I have another question to get to that, but I think if you can ask that quickly in a clear way, especially in regard to neo colonialism and cultural pillars, which we've kind of touched upon all the way through, really. But in a monetary sense, I think that would be good.
0: So I want to preface this discussion of money to say that I wrote this chapter. It originally appeared in a collection from the Institute for Network Cultures on the Money Lab collection, uh, or parts of it originally did. And it was written in some ways as a bit of a warning to many friends that we both have in common, I think, uh, not individual people, but a kind of tendency in the in the kind of cryptocurrency and monetary innovation community, which I think there's an enthusiasm that if only we could sort of fix the monetary system, then we would fix all other systems. Like a kind of chiropractic maneuver where if you just like align the spine of society, which here is seen as the money system, everything's gonna kind of work out and be better. My sense is that, uh, that of course there's a great importance to Explore new ways we can cooperate with one another and new media for cooperation, including new forms of money and quantification of labor and of value. But I think that there is a bit of a problem in the way that people historicize the story of money because they tend to take up a story of money from liberal economic thinkers like Adam Smith, that come to us from Adam Smith, that is, I think, fundamentally wrong. Now, just briefly, that story from Adam Smith is that there's a kind of trans historical story of money. And humans specialize in their form of labor they develop specialized goods and services they bring them to a proverbial market at the market they're all bartering their goods and services and then one day some smart person comes up and says actually what if we just use one of these commodities to exchange all other commodities rather than you know me trying to trade like five cows for 10 bushels of wheat why don't i trade my three cows for ten dollars this thing we're going to call a dollar And then I use that dollar to buy the wheat and everything becomes simpler. And voila, you have a system that unfolds from that. And you have imperial philosophers like Niall Ferguson and his Ascent of Money who sort of take up this story whole cloth and then retell human history, essentially, as the kind of peaceful progress of money that then finally leads us to what Francis Fukuyama called the end of history. You know, a moment where capitalism takes over the world and everything's exchangeable in money and we have a kind of universal peace this is nonsense. It's nonsense historically, it's nonsense anthropologically, and it's nonsense in the terms of political economy. And so I want to go back and tell a different story of money in this chapter. And I choose the, there are many examples like this, but I choose the one that happened on the territories that I currently inhabit here in Canada, which is the story of wampum beads. Now, I'm going to try and tell this very, very quickly, uh, Mm -hmm. but it'll do a lot of injustice to the complexities. So essentially, wampum beads are purple and white shell beads that were harvested in the area that's now known as Connecticut and New York State on the coastline. And these beads were traded inland before colonialism here in Turtle Island amongst many, many different indigenous nations. And the reach of wampum beads as a trade commodity in that age speaks to the complexity of these civilizations and the complexity of their trade and diplomatic relationships. And as it spread throughout North America before colonization, wampum became useful for people not only as a medium to trade things in as a commodity uh, and a currency it also became very important spiritually and politically so treaties on these lands between different indigenous nations were signed in wampum through the exchange of wampum and also through creating belts of wampum that had very specific purposes it was used in funerary rites by a number of indigenous nations and importantly it was used as a means If you owed someone a blood debt, if you had killed a member of their family or you'd done a harm to them, you would give wampum as a way of atoning for your debt. And that would heal the society of revenge. So wampum was this very important social technology, not only of trade, but also of ameliorating the socially destructive effects of vengefulness. When the Europeans arrived, at first they thought wampum was just a useless trinket. There's stories of, for instance, the Dutch buying Manhattan Island for wampum beads, which is, of course, is highly mythologized because they weren't buying it. They were essentially renting use of it, but then they decided that they bought it. But the real story I try and tell in the chapter is when a Dutch trader kidnapped an indigenous leader named Tabotem and essentially demanded ransom in the form of furs, which is what the Europeans wanted on these shores when Tabotem's people, the Pequot, said that they didn't have those furs because it wasn't the right season to hunt them. And in any case, the ransom was impossible to obtain. The, the trader, whose name was Van elikens killed Tabotem, but he also got the ransom that the Pequot offered, which was a huge, like a, a king's ransom worth of wampum beads. And elikens and other European uh, Dutch traders at the time realized that they could use this huge primitive accumulation of wampum beads now to destroy indigenous economies so what they began to do is demand that all fur trade happen in wampum beads and they began to declare that wampum would be legal tender and as their power grew they began to demand that indigenous people start paying them fines and taxes in wampum and meanwhile they began to dominate and control the areas where wampum shells were actually cultivated and produced such that within 20 years, within one generation, indigenous people had no sources to produce wampum and yet had to constantly pay through wampum. And it was a means not only of genocide and the colonization of indigenous lands, but also what I call econocide, the whole destruction of a much more complex, much more prosaic, much more profound economy that indigenous people were practicing before colonization. And I think this story of the origin of money does us much better service in understanding the perils and promises of money than the kind of, bucolic just so story that we inherit from Adam Smith and that gets pr- propagated by sort of defenders of the neoliberal order. And I think it does much better service to those of us who would like to think about what other purposes money could be put towards in a better world. And we have to contend with the way that money has been used in the history of capitalist vengeance, uh, rather than narrating it as a perfecting and perfectible technology of peace,
1: that's clear. So, in the postscript after the pandemic against vindictive normal, which you've written towards the end of your book, where you write about COVID nineteen pandemic, where you say that it's an epochal shift. In it, you mentioned that there is the dangerous blurring of the line between humanitarian and authoritarian measures. You discuss geopolitical weaponization of the pandemic, saying when we emerge from hibernation, it will be time of unprecedented global struggle uh, against both the drive to return to normal, the same normal that set the stage for this tragedy, and the normal which might be even worse. And you say, let us prepare... As best we can, for so we have a world to win. It'll be interesting to know where you're coming from regarding the kind of context of revenge capitalism.
0: Mm-hmm. Without going into too much detail, we're already seeing the post-pandemic struggles emerging in the resurgence of Black Lives Matter and the uprisings in the US and their residents around the world. And I think what is underneath those and why they've gained so much traction, not only amongst Black people, but also all people, people of many, many different backgrounds, is because in them, there is a sense of a refusal of the system of revenge capitalism, which historically, both around the world and specifically in the United States, has in its worst manifestations targeted Black people. And so solidarity with the Black Lives Matter demonstrations and their current uprisings, I think, speaks to a much, first of all, solidarity with people who are being murdered by police, and other systems of injustice, but also to a much deeper refusal of that system's implications for all of us, which, to put it very briefly, is revenge capitalism is a system that makes everyone replaceable and worthless in the name of profit. It makes some people much more disposable and worthless than others, but it is one that essentially sees human life as a resource to be exploited. And I think everyone feels that touching their life implicitly. Some people see the best response for that to be to form together in ethno-nationalist or religious clusters and try and defend themselves through borders, through militarized force, through the deepening of inequalities. And I think that's the spirit that animates the kind of rhetoric of Trump and many, many others, far-right governments around the world. For many of the rest of us, I think it's leading to a realization that unless we band together in solidarity and create a world where human life and all forms of life on the planet, not just human life, are invaluable rather than worthless and disposable, then this system will slowly kill us all. It might kill some of us much more quickly than others, but I think that's the realization that people are having, even if they can't articulate it as such. And so it's time not only to abolish that system, but to kind of avenge all of the crimes and cruelties that system has done over the ages by annihilating it.
1: Related to the end of chapter four uh, is the interlude. It's called V's Vendetta or Joker's Retribution. It's a fascinating read where you say both V's Vendetta and Joker are means by which Hollywood, for all its contradictions as a capitalist industry, both processes and co-op, social movements, uh, symbolism, but at the same time, provide semiotic and narrative resources for popular mobilisation. You link both as coming from a hegemonic masculinity. And so I'm saying, could you discuss what key points you think are poignant in respect of how it all links to revenge, vengeance, class and racism? Mm.
0: Yeah, I mean, I I knew from the very beginning of working on this book that I wanted to somehow work with V for Vendetta as a film. And then as I was writing the book, of course, Joker was produced and there was a lot of controversy with its release. And then it became a huge hit and, and in some ways a touchstone. And what fascinated me about both films is that they obviously take from and seek to sort of represent in Hollywoodized form the culture of street protest of the days in which they are produced. V for Vendetta was produced in the early 2000s, sort of during the great uprisings against the Iraq war. And of course, Joker was produced in sort of the wake of uh, the Occupy movement and the Black Lives Matter movements and uh, movements, sort of street protests around the world. And of course, the sort of great global recession and post-crisis moment after 2008. And so I try and analyze these on a number of different levels. One of them is that a simplistic reading would simply say that these films take up and commercialize protest culture. And I think there's an element of truth to that. That's what Hollywood does. Both films, I think, are purposefully ambiguous in the lines between what is a kind of right-wing and left-wing vision in order to appeal to very wide audiences for commercial reasons. And yet at the same time, both films then gave resources to social movements as semiotic resources for protest. So for years now, the the Guy Fawkes mask that's so iconic from V for Vendetta has been a mainstay of, of protests, especially the Occupy movement or the Hong Kong protest movements, especially where people need to hide their faces. It began with the hacker group Anonymous and has continued since then. And then immediately following the release of Joker, In uprisings in Hong Kong, in Chile, in in Lebanon and elsewhere, we began to see people masking themselves up as with the makeup of Joker, in some way perhaps echoing the film's sort of implicit critique of human abandonment. And for those who haven't seen it, the recent Joker film focuses on a mentally ill, poor white man living in Gotham City, which is a proxy for New York City in the sort of neoliberal moment of the late 70s and early 80s. Who is sort of ground down by the society in which he lives to the point where he becomes this kind of psychopathic but charismatic figure? And throughout the entire film, we're never sure if it's his own fantasy or
1: the reality. Yeah. Can I just cut in, just from yeah. what's interesting about the film, which you actually refer to in the book, is the clash between white class, working class, and black culture. Yeah. Uh, specifically, the woman who he idolized in across the hallway. The tensions and another black woman, which I can't quite remember yeah, in the film that you
0: yeah, mentioned. Yeah. So, yeah. one of the arguments I make in the book, and that others have also noted, is that while the overarching narrative of Joker is that American society fails an honest and good white man, the face of America's failure is consistently in that film black women. So you have in an early scene in the film, a black woman on a bus who distrusts him when he's trying to speak to her child. Uh, and he's presented as kind of childlike, and 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 this is a barrier. There's a, There's a scene with his psychologist or social worker where she is not really, she's not sympathetic to him. She says like, we're all being trashed by this system. At the end of the film, he murders or fantasizes about murdering a sort of forensic psychologist who's interviewing him in a psychiatric hospital Uh, And then there's his neighbor, who's a black woman, about whom he fantasizes this sort of loving and caring relationship. And it occurs later in the film that, in fact, they never had a relationship. She doesn't even know who he is. So throughout the film, it is is the failure of black women to care for a white man that leads to the catastrophe and the apocalypse that Joker then unleashes, which is a very reactionary fantasy, right? Because I think what it says to certain audiences who see the film is that, oh, isn't this terrible neoliberalism is trashing all of us? What it says to other audiences is there have been these special interest groups that are personified in the racist imaginary of the United States as black women who have been elevated to positions of minor authority by an unequal system of opportunities that elevate black women to positions where they ought not to be. And that the failure of black women to provide enough care is the reason why. The system is failing, even though the film does present then someone like the Wayne family, Batman's family of rich sort of patricians as being somewhat indifferent. Really, when it comes to the emotional gut punch of the film, the effect comes through these what are presented as failures of Black women to care for white men. And I think that's an extremely dangerous mythology. But the film is very crafty in that it gives resources to all viewers. Is a sort of Rorschach where you can see whatever you want to see in it. But unfortunately, I think when we view films like this, we need to not see what we want to see. We need to see what we think others will want to see in the film, and I, I think that is especially important in this moment of revenge capitalism and what kind of revenge fantasies these films awaken. You know, similarly, a film like *V for Vendetta* has been interpreted by most people as a kind of liberal, democratic, or even anarchist approach. And I, I love the film. I think it's a great film. I think the comic book's even better by uh, Moore from the 1980s. But there's a way that a lot of these films play both sides of the room or multiple sides of the room, and we need to be very careful about celebrating them too. Uh,
1: and Viva Vendetta, I think, is better in the sense that the hero isn't just the main guy, he kind of trains the other woman to be a kind of anarchist against the state as well. Yes, and, although, uh, although he trained I know, for I, I psychological yeah, we, and physical abuse. We, we both wouldn't <laughs> recommend the uh, training sequence, no. Yeah,
0: yeah,
1: yeah. Although some people do pay for it, but, uh, yeah. you know, we just wouldn't do it. Yeah, so the hegemonic masculinity is quite an interesting aspect. And what I think what I like about the Joker is that he's definitely not a superhero. He's a dysfunctional person that has got mental health issues. As well as he, something about his laugh, you know what happens about his laugh. He can't.
0: He he can't control it. It's it's, it's yeah. like his response to any sort of emotional overwhelm. Yeah, he starts which, to kind of
1: hysterical. Uh, laugh. And yeah. the irony of that is really powerful. And mm-hmm. yeah, so going back to the, I think it's Alan Moore. When I was younger, I used to read Crisis magazine, mm. which uh, or Crisis, uh, Crisis comic, which Alan Moore was part of that. And it was a comic for activists. And I think Beef Vendetta was in there, but also other ones where eco-activism of the 80s was being written by that group of writers and uh, artists. And it's very influential in the UK mm. as part of a kind of not just activist movement, but also permacultural movements mm-hmm. uh, where it kind of explore alternative ways of existence beyond typical kind of absolute hierarchical capitalist means. And it's very ahead of its time regarding around gender and, mm-hmm. and sexism. It was just really interesting. And it's talking to... An audience of activists would say at that, that time would be a bit later protesting against apartheid in South right. Africa. So there's a kind of strong. So, yeah, it's uh, the fifth chapter, which is called The Dead Zone: Financialized Nihilism, Toxic Wealth, and uh, Vindictive Technologies. It examines the dead zones that grow around the world and inside of us under revenge capitalism. It's about the numb but panicked apathy the overstimulated stagnation and the blinded fixation on survival that strips us of our empathy and imagination and in this which i really enjoyed this chapter uh, but just pulling bits out the interlude again which is really interesting chloe kardashian's revenge body or the zapatista body or the zapatista
0: nobody yeah yeah
1: Nobody, yeah. You ask, what would a, a reality show called Avenged Body look like, rather than fixating on a form of revenge within the moral economy of oppression that caused the injury? So mm-hmm. and I'm kind of paraphrasing here. So you say a sorry excuse for revenge fantasy, Revenge Body is one of a wide range of mass-produced cultural artifacts that seizes upon the experience of alienation and disposability germane to what I'm calling revenge capitalism and offers an almost narcotic tonic. So for me, there are elements of psychological torture here where we are in a cultural prison where the spectacle distracts us from ourselves into a nightmarish and dreamlike world of looking at other people's lives and not paying attention to our own and collective needs. And so what past, current or future examples that relate to the ideas explored in this text can you share with us regarding or some of the, the context of what we just discussed there?
0: Mm-hmm. Wow. Yeah. Um, there's there's so many things there. So let me preface this by saying, because we're going to dive from the discussion of V for Vendetta and, and Joker into this chapter, that a big part of the book is exploring the vengeance around patriarchy and patriarchal violence. And and I think any honest accounting for the actually existing revenge politics on the planet needs to take into account that patriarchal revenge by men against women and non-binary people is the reality of revenge politics today. It doesn't necessarily coordinate itself under a particular banner, but men's vengeance is a leading cause of death of women worldwide. So it's important to frame the, these comments within the context where like, murder is happening, and, and mass yeah. murder often, especially when we look at some of the things that have been inspired by whole, like, incel culture, like this stupid internet oh, God, nonsense. Yes. Yeah where then men license themselves to take a gratuitous and uh, public revenge against women for not finding them attractive because they're mass murders? I don't know. It's an absurd subculture, but one that I think <laughs> is... Good. Okay, so now coming back to Revenge Body. So just briefly, Khloe Kardashian, I, I'm not going to go into the history of the Kardashian family, which are like mega celebrities basically just because they're they're famous because they're famous. But this is a reality TV show aired on MTV or maybe not MTV, the reality TV show, Entertainment Network in the United States, where Khloe Kardashian basically meets with a person, usually a woman, usually someone who's overweight, and interviews them basically about the traumas of their life. And then they get set up with a personal trainer where for the rest of the episode, they go through usually pretty punishing and brutal personal training, which then usually involves them having some sort of emotional breakdown during the physical training. Um, And all of this is done in the name of taking revenge on somebody who spurned them in the past. So the kind of quintessential example is a woman is dumped by her boyfriend or lover because she's perceived to be too heavy, have the wrong type of body. And so ironically and weirdly, she strives in the show to obtain the body That the the lover who spurned her would have wanted, in order to take revenge on him.
1: Yeah, Uh, but now she's got it. He can't have it. Is
0: that right? Right. 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 So it's a I think it's a really toxic narrative on multiple levels. And it comes as the latest installation of a number of reality TV shows that have been basically founded in uh misogyny and fat phobia. That, you know, there's this we as a society, and others have commented on this much more articulately than I can. We have a particular hang-up in this society that we live in about fat and specifically about fat and gender when put together. And so the show, what I found so interesting about it is it offers us, like on the surface, the, the sort of a manifest narrative of the show is that we're supposed to sympathize with the Avenger in this case. That, you know, her, sometimes it's a man, but usually it's a woman. And very occasionally it's a non-binary person. We're supposed to sympathize with their quest to get revenge and to sympathize with their effort to lose weight and to get the body that they uh, allegedly want. And yet what is so clear about the show, if you mute it and you just watch it, is that this is about spectacularizing the fat body and spectacularizing their efforts to lose weight. So it's it's very exploitative, especially on a visual level. It's extremely exploitative because you see people really struggling in gym settings to you know do exercises that are very difficult for them to do. There's a kind of slapstick element to it. And then, of course, inevitably, the producers of the show try and elicit from the participant a kind of emotional breakdown, which is going to make for good TV. So it's essentially a kind of revenge against the Avenger through the televisual spectacle that we all participate in and that we sort of enjoy. And I guess in the chapter of this little section of the book, I try and understand what the kind of Lacanian theorists call like the jouissance, the kind of surplus enjoyment that we get out of this, that the sort of cinematic Field offers us. And in the chapter, I contrast that to then a very interesting passage from an American group of women who traveled down to Chiapas in uh, what is now Mexico to go to the Zapatista gathering of women a few years ago. And the Zapatista vision of what it means to be an embodied avenger, in my terminology, an embodied avenger. Now, the, the thing I would just say about tying it back to other examples is I think what a reality TV show about avenging rather than revenge would be is we're watching it now it is happening in the streets of cities around the world as people rise up against what i call revenge capitalism there was an amazing video that was shared yesterday i believe of uh protesters in new orleans who blocked police cruisers from arresting a black woman at the protest a young black woman and they are absolutely i mean the police are threatening to drive through the protesters to be able to get the person they've arrested out The protesters refuse to move and they demand the liberation of this woman who's been captured. She's liberated. And there's such an expression of love and joy and care in that moment of all of these bodies of people who don't know each other, but share a shared condition. That is the avenging body. It's not just the body of the individual. It's the body of an us. And it's a body okay. of, in, in the terminology of that, of that chapter, it's the avenging of all of the nobodies, all of the people who've been made nobody.
1: Yes, so uh, from my own experience at the poll tax riots, we, mm. well, we were involved in that, being attacked by police on horses, all kinds of stuff going on. And uh, lots of people being eaten up and all kinds of damage being caused. But as a collective, avenging Margaret Thatcher's poll tax at the time It was an amazing experience and it was very beautiful. And Mm -hmm. uh, it's something that you rarely feel. It's something people try to get at. uh, I'll say soccer matches for the Americans out there. (laughs) uh, But football matches here, as we call them, people go to football matches to feel that kind of mass comradeship, but not avenging, I suppose. And and that's what you just. Mentioned there I can immediately relate to I just wanted to wind back to the revenge, death and violence aspect So growing up, we've all grown up with women being kind of attacked in horror films uh, Serial killers attacking them This kind of archetypal character that, uh, And in detective TV shows like for years Hundreds and thousands of women being killed right uh, like the beginning of the show as a kind of plot starter, uh, which is like so cliche and naff, and yet the revenge is finding the killer. But there's no real revenge in a sense of dealing with the real context of why do we always have to see loads of women being mutually murdered all the time? Why? Yeah. Why do we have to? Yeah. And it's a very disturbing capitalist control of the idea of women you know we see more women murdered through our psyche and in our dreams possibly than everything else so mm-hmm. to speak mm-hmm.
0: no it's very true and uh i'll give a quick content warning here because i have to talk about rape and sexual violence it, there's been an interesting debate within feminist media studies about the role of this I'm, and especially the role of the so-called rape revenge film which has become an increasingly common mainstay of Hollywood in the last few decades, where the theme is that a woman is raped and then comes to take revenge on her rapists. And there's a question that was like the first and in some ways the best book about this by Clover called Men, Women and Chainsaws makes the point to ask us, like, whose fantasy is this? there's a projection to imagine that we are being led into the fantasy of the woman who takes revenge. But in fact, what this is, is a kind of patriarchal fantasy, where in some way you have an image of the vengeful woman who is inevitably and always like, quote unquote, conventionally attractive, and usually scantily clad, and whose horrific sexual assault we've now been made to watch, who then comes back to take revenge. And There's a lot to be questioned about who benefits from this. There's also many feminist media scholars who point out that, in fact, women and other people who've suffered sexual assault find in these films some form of solace or therapy or vindication. And that may indeed be true. But I think we just need to be very distrustful and always ask the question, who who mostly benefits here? And the kind of uh, puppet of the female Avenger when in the hands of the marionette uh, master of Hollywood plays a very different role. And, you know, it contrasts, frankly, to the very curious statistic that in spite of the fact that a vast proportion of women in our society, by some conservative estimates, one quarter of women in our society at some point survive sexual assault very few women actually take revenge and that i think we need to hold up beside the kind of fantasy of revenge because i think the fantasy of revenge then furnishes a patriarchal fantasy that women are always seeking revenge and one of the things i talk about in the book and i trace back to francis bacon the philosopher not the artist uh and the witch trials of the 16th century is that just as revenge capitalism and the systems of colonialism have always blamed colonized and racialized people for being pathologically and untrustworthy worthfully vengeful so too have they labeled women in society as pathologically vengeful often in the figure of the witch who needs to be contained and controlled and destroyed uh, because if her vengeance is allowed to manifest it will destroy society. And that ties together to the present day use of the accusation that white men who dare speak their mind are being caught up in a witch hunt, you know, one of Donald Trump's favorite phases, but also one that is used by practically every right wing and reactionary bigot on the planet now. Whenever they face any sort of criticism or are told that they don't know what they're talking about, they claim that they're now the victim of a witch hunt, which in some ways is always a dog whistle to say that women are out of control they're out of control in their criticism, they're out of control, even though now the right appropriates the witch hunt as their own language for their own uh, notion of persecution.
1: Yes. Yeah, so because they own the system, in so to speak, because its system is designed for their means, they own the idea of objectivity and against the fantasy of hysteria and potential of revenge. And uh, yes, definitely. Okay, one more question. So my last question is, what would your ideal or ideal readers take from from this book? And how would you expect them to use it beyond reading the book itself?
0: Yeah. That's actually a very difficult question for me. Um, Because, you know, as you write a book, you have to satisfy the thing that the book animates within you. And then you, in some ways, just hope that people take some of the similar things. I guess one thing I would hope for is that fundamentally, we need to do better work of telling stories about how the present came to be that allow us to understand that all of our struggles are connected. And I think in this book, I've struggled to balance on the one hand, the rigors of my disciplinary training and cultural studies and critical theory to be able to offer facts and good analysis that are solid and will hold up to criticism but on the other hand i want to be a revolutionary storyteller i want to tell stories that make resistance rebellion and revolution irresistible and for me that i don't think i've done that but i'm trying to move towards that and that for me means trying to show that the history of the witch trials, the history of slavery, the history of colonialism, the history of capitalism, the history of gendered exploitation, all of these things are connected on some level. And the thread I use to stitch them together here is revenge, but there are many other threads and other people have written excellent books that do similar work in similar ways. So the first and foremost thing I would hope is that it will give us a resource to recognize that all of these stories are connected and that all of our struggles somehow need to connect and that Therefore, we all need to connect. Those of us who are made disposable by capitalism um, need to connect on some level and work in solidarity. The second thing I would hope that readers would take away from the book in some sense is that efforts to separate capitalism from racism, colonialism, and imperialism need to be thrown away. Like that, Those things can never be separated. They are one another's context, fundamentally, and patriarchy as well. And so I hope to have contributed to the realization that we have to keep those things entangled. And I I regret I didn't do it more in my previous work. The third thing I would say about what I would hope that people would take from the book is that, you know, as we talked about earlier in this interview, we live in a society that has surrounded the notion of revenge with a great deal of opprobium and distrust. In spite of the fact that revenge is everywhere and that revenge is such a common theme in popular culture, as we've discussed, somehow the idea of when you tie revenge to politics, we have a great allergy and fear of this. And for good reason, you know, even left-wing and liberatory movements for human liberation have become vengeful and bloody and destructive. I'm not denying that in any in any way. But I think that we should not deny the way that any thinking, feeling uh, loving human being feels their blood boil at the incredible injustices that are being perpetuated and the impunity of those who perpetuate those injustices. When we think about the billions who are going to be displaced or die from climate change so that a handful of corporations can continue to make astronomical sums of money. When I think about what happened uh, you know, in the UK context in the Grenville fire, where precarious and disposable people, people who are rendered disposable by the system, were sacrificed on the altar of essentially austerity for no reason. I can't help but feel vengeful. And I think so many of us encounter things in our, in our life, Grenville Tower Fire a few years ago. I think there are so many examples of that. And I think if we don't deal with that upfront, if we tamp down and push down that notion of vengeance and vengefulness in, the, in this way, we're doing a great injustice to something that we need to contend with. And I hope to have offered resource in this book to help us think through what it would mean to transform the feeling of vengefulness into a structure of avenging that can be a a resource for thinking through movements in this moment.
1: Okay, I think that answers that question. That's it. So thank you very much, Max.
0: Thank you so much. Thank you so much to Max Haven and Mark Garrett for that conversation. Thanks everyone for listening and have a great weekend.